Well, the devil, demons, happy Thanksgiving, and Merry Christmas. Let's talk about demons, right? Nothing fits better than a a Thanksgiving or Christmas sermon than talking about demons. And maybe for some of you, this will help clarify or give understanding to what the, the last week has been for you, right? Maybe you've, as you spent time with your family, the thoughts of people being possessed by demons or the devil has become a, a common thing, a thing that you've, you've thought about. And more likely, most of us, when we think of the devil or demons, we don't think of our uncles. We think of a little red horned figure on our shoulder saying, do it. And then of course, we have the angel on the other side saying, don't do it. Or most likely, most of us in this room are just weirded out by this topic. That we live in a culture that has, for a long time, regarded anything supernatural with great skepticism, great suspicion. And we live in a scientific age in many ways. And that's, there's been good parts to that, obviously, that we have more medical advances now than we've ever had before. That, that the medical field has just gone in, in incredible directions. That we have more technology than we have ever had before. That we understand the physical world in which we live today better than we ever have before. But if there's more than just the physical world, there's more than just a natural explanation for the world in which you live. And we're uncomfortable by that. At least we don't like it. If I came up to you and started talking about demons and got really close to you, you'd probably be uncomfortable, think me strange, and try to leave. Then maybe even now you're wishing that this was a Sunday you had taken off, that why'd you drive home early for church, now you're stuck with this, or maybe some of you have a, a bathroom break, well-timed, you're going to figure out when it gets the most awkward and you're going to exit out the back door and wait for it not to get weird anymore. Because we don't like the supernatural. We are inherently skeptical of the supernatural. But the Bible talks about devil, the devil, and demons. And I would go so far to say the Bible says... That it's not the people who believe in the devil or demons who have a naive view of evil. It's those who don't. And my guess is some of you may think me simplistic, naive, ridiculous for just believing that there is a demonic, spiritual, supernatural world. But the Bible says if you don't, you are the one who's naive. Let me give you two reasons why as we launch into this, this topic at first, most human beings through most, of human, through most of history have believed in a supernatural world, have believed in a personal force of evil, in a devil and demons. And so if you don't, or if you find that skeptical, you're in the vast minority of humanity. So just for the next 30 minutes, don't be so close-minded. Be open. Then maybe there's some wisdom in what the rest of the world sees, that we in the West, which are inherently skeptical of the supernatural, maybe we miss something. But secondly, I would ask this question. How do you explain the source of evil? That many in our culture say, well, evil exists because of a lack of education, or bad parenting, or a lack of morals, or just not a good upbringing. Right? If we had those things, evil would not be what it is. But that, that doesn't work. Because in the middle of the 20th century, the most educated, some might say the most well-rounded, the, the place with the most universities, the place with the most brilliant professors, a moral, upright society gave us the Holocaust. 
Germany. A place with universities and learning, educated, in some cases wealthy. They gave us the Holocaust. That evil does not have a natural explanation. And if you try to give a natural explanation for evil, you're just naive. Let me ask, why? Why does murder exist? Racism, cruelty, abuse. Is it just because we haven't given the right tolerance classes yet? See, it doesn't matter what society you live in, whether it's educated or uneducated, whether it's old or young, whether it's wise or foolish, everywhere evil keeps springing up. Because the roots to evil are not natural, they're not manageable, they're supernatural. And that's one thing Paul is saying to us. And that culture would have accepted that as, as being true, but us, in our culture, we don't. We don't like that. But the reality is, what Paul is saying, in this world that you live what you see is never all that's there. That what you see is never what you get. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Paul is saying there is a cosmic battle, a cosmic war all around us. And in this war is an enemy, a savior, and a weapon. So let's look at Ephesians 6 under those three headings. The enemy, the savior, and the weapon. First, the enemy. I've already told you who I think the enemy is, obviously. It's, it's Satan and, and demons. And Paul doesn't just say, hey, your enemy are Satan and demons. He, he has two really important sentences in verse 11 and 12 that he crafts that is saying a lot. And, and so it's worth rereading these two verses. Paul writes to us, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As I read this, I'm struck by the language that Paul uses. Schemes of the devil, powers, authorities, rulers, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly places, that Paul paints a picture of these forces as if they have real power in the world in which we live. That Paul doesn't display the demonic world as something, as, as we tend to display it, right? With a little devilish figure on our shoulders, kind of a cartoonish uh, character, kind of a joke, right? Or how Hollywood often describes the, or displays the demonic, which could be really powerful um, dragons are really intimidating creatures, but ultimately, they're nothing that Arnold Schwarzenegger or some well-placed explosives can't take care of. Right? And, and what Paul says is these forces have real power in the world in which we live. They are a real force to be reckoned with. So the question is, well, what, how do they have power? How do, how do they, they have schemes? How do they, they wage war against us? And there's, there's many things that could be said about that. That is a whole sermon series, probably a whole year's worth of sermons. You could go into that. And I just want to probably focus our minds around one idea about what the demonic world wants to do with us, and that is to enslave us. And this happens in, in many ways, but let me focus in on two. That first, Satan and the demonic world seek to enslave individual people. Now earlier in this letter, 
Paul talks to these Ephesian Christians about what they were before they were Christians. And here's the language he uses to describe them, which is in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. He says this to people who were not Christians or to to their pre-Christian past. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is a dark picture he gives. One of slavery and death. Following after the prince of the power of air. Which is just another phrase Paul uses to describe Satan. And that Paul looks at these Christians and he says, You know their power and their force. Because before Christ saved you, you were following after them. And I realize that that... That could be a deeply offensive thing to say, right? That if you're not a Christian, you are enslaved to these forces. And, and that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. But again, if there is a supernatural world that exists, its aim is not merely to just prevent you from being a Christian. It's to, to enslave you, to blind you to your own weakness, to blind you to your own slavery. You have to understand, we do not wrestle with an enemy who just tries to catch us in a moment of weakness, who just tries to to find a a moment to get us to do something we would otherwise never do. No, Paul uses this phrase that there are schemes of the devil. And the the word schemes is the word we get uh, methods from. That, That he has ideas, he has thoughts about how to lead people into slavery, how to enslave them. That to to offer you something you think will give you life, but actually gives you death. To offer you something you think will make you free, but actually enslaves you. And so do you see why people around you are often trapped in addiction, trapped in cycles of bitterness or brokenness? Why some of, and all jokes aside, why some of the family members you spent time with this week are at the same sins they've been at their whole lives? There's a reason for that. It's because evil does not have manageable roots. You don't just try harder and overcome it. It has supernatural roots with an enemy who seeks to enslave. But Satan does more than that. He doesn't just enslave individual people. He also seeks to enslave whole societies. And one thing I often hear Christians say is that the church needs to focus mostly on preaching to individuals. Our job is to save individual souls, and that's what the church should do. And so the church should not be tied up in issues of justice or issues uh, that, that are societal. We should stick to saving individual souls. That's the aim of the church. And that would be true if Satan only sought to enslave individuals, but he doesn't. He doesn't just work on the individual level. He works on the societal level. How else do you think Germany endorsed the Holocaust? Or how the United States endorsed slavery? Because Satan knows he can not just enslave individuals. He can enslave whole cultures, whole societies. And one way that's at work now in in the culture in which we live in Kansas City is, is reading. For example, if we know that if a kid is not reading proficiently in, in the third grade, they are four times more likely to drop out of high school. In fact, Chris um, let me know this week that as we build prisons, one way we know how many people will end up in those prisons is to look at third graders and how they read. And Satan has found a wonderful way to enslave our kids. It's illiteracy. And so one way we need to fight back as a church is not just preach the gospel, but teach kids to read. Because Satan doesn't just work, and his demonic forces do not just work on an individual level. They work 
on the cultural level. And today in Kansas City, only 33% of kids in third grade read proficiently at their level, which sets them up for a terrible future. And if you think in this world that we just wrestle with flesh and blood, you're likely to look on prison inmates or people who, whose lives have been ruined and just think they're the problem, just think they're the issue, and, and they just need to clean up their act, not knowing that behind them is a whole story of, an, of injustice, of oppression, of Satan getting at them at a young age. Because in this world, what you see is never what you get. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the authorities, against the cosmic forces over this present darkness. That we have a real enemy. And so, one thing that's important for us then to realize is that the world in which we live, there's more than meets the eye. That what you see is not always what you get. And especially that's true as you interact with other people who frustrate you, who disappoint you, who you often will maybe be led to complain about. That this past week, obviously, Misty and I went back to Indianapolis um, to spend some time with, with our family. And there's one particular member in one of our sides of the family, which I'll try not to reveal, um, who really frustrates us because every time we eat, he just really grosses us out. He finds a way. So this year, it was Thanksgiving dinner. I, I load my plate up in the kitchen, and it is, it is loaded with good Thanksgiving food. Right? I mean, as much as food as you can put on a plate, I have put on that plate. And I'm walking into our living room, and this family member has decided that the topic of conversation for Thanksgiving this year is going to be the, the medical improvements of gastrointestinal surgery. Yeah, so now my Thanksgiving plate looks like my gastrointestinal system. Thank you, right? Like, why are we talking about this? And that is the case every time we're around him is I have to listen to some, some story about some person he's mad at, some terrible thing that happened to him. He's, he complains. He's bitter. Wears me out. And then God made me preach this sermon this week, so I'm thinking about, you know, how there's more to this guy's story than, than just what he says to me. There's a backstory there. There's more than meets the eye. See, the people that you encounter that frustrate you, that, that you want to give up on, that you want to write off, there's stories there. Stories why they're bitter. Stories why they drive you nuts. Evil that's been done to them. And listen, I'm not saying that therefore, you know, everyone just say the devil made me do it. No one takes personal responsibility. I'm not saying that because that's a naive view of evil. But what I am saying is that every person you encounter throughout your life, there's more there than you realize. And as you, as you talk, as you converse, as you know and get to know people, there's more to their story. And that's why Paul says to us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's interesting he has to say that to us, right? He's like, it's like he knows where we're going to go. That we're going to look at flesh and blood. We're going to look at the people around us, and that's what we're going to do battle with. Right? So we're going to be angry at them, or embittered against them, or give up on them, or withdraw ourselves from them, or exclude them. And Paul says, no, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. For we wrestle against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And if you don't see that, if you don't understand that, you will not be able to live in a world that is full of evil, that has supernatural roots. You'll try and explain it away. 
And you'll lack compassion for those around you. So that's the enemy. The second, then, we have the Savior, which Paul then talks about. And, and what's interesting in verse 10 is you have the, sort of the command Paul gives to us, which frames the whole passage. And he, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that, it's not the best translation because the command Paul gives to us is actually a passive imperative. It's be made strong. Right? It's not go out and make yourself strong. It's, it's not go be strong. It's be made strong. And, and, and the question, well, how are you made strong? Right? How are you made strong so that you can stand against the enemy? And, and what Paul gives as an answer to that question is he says, put on the whole armor of God. That's how you're made strong. Which raises the question, okay, well, what does it mean to put on the armor of God? And Paul is drawing here on a passage in Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, God's people had been conquered by another nation, and they were living in an oppressive situation, living in injustice, living in, in some ways to, to slave, in slavery. And so throughout Isaiah, they're calling out for God to, to save them, for God to release them, for God to free them from their oppression. And God finally does. And in vivid, vivid language in Isaiah 59, this is what God, this is what happens, what God says and God does. God looked and saw evil looming on the horizon. So much evil and no sign of justice. He couldn't believe what he saw. Not a soul around to correct this awful situation. So he did it himself. Took on the work of salvation. Fueled by his own righteousness. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. That in Isaiah, God puts on this armor and he goes and he fights for his people. He frees them from slavery, from impression, from injustice. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's picking up on this language in Isaiah to, to deal for the people in Ephesus here to deal with their enemies. He's saying, listen, God has taken up his armor and he has fought for you. He's freed you from these, these, these forces because you were once dead in trespasses and sins. You once were following after the prince of the power of the air, but you are no longer because God took up his armor and he fought for you and he freed you from injustice, from oppression, from slavery. That is what Paul's point is here, to take up the armor of God, which I have to be honest, as a kid growing up, this passage kind of was a little goofy to me. Because right? at children's ministry, some, some adult male generally drew the short straw and had to, to wear this. You know, he had to dress up like a Roman soldier in front of all the kids. It's like, what do we do to fellow Christians? It just seems horrible to me. But we, we make him do that, right? And he's got his breastplate of righteousness on, his helmet of salvation on. Don't ever ask me to do this, by the way. And, and he gets up in front of the kids, right? And it's all cute. and cut. But that is not the point. The point is not that this is some new armor that we wear that's great. No, this is the armor God fought for us in. And he tells us to put it on because as we wear this armor, our enemy recognizes it. Because it's the very armor that he defeated them in. And so God is not saying, stand firm, try hard, be strong. He's saying, I have fought for you. I've won this battle for you, so you can stand firm. You can know what the victory is. You can know what the end of this battle, this war, this story is going to be. Now you see, there are two great mistakes we can make about the demonic world, about the, the enemy that we face. And C.S. Lewis has a great, a great quote, I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard before, that, that, that says that the two things we can get into, or the two mistakes we can make. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors to which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That they themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. That Lewis is saying the two errors we make about the demonic world is we either underestimate their power or we overestimate their power. Right, and so we underestimate their power. That was my whole first point, is that these are real forces in people's lives. And if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that we don't just wrestle against flesh and blood, but every human being is fighting a cosmic war, a battle that is in their hearts, that goes far deeper than what you see, you will lack compassion for them. You'll lack grace. You'll lack kindness towards them. Because you'll think they should just get over it. Not seeing they are wrestling with real forces. But the flip side of that, the other area you make, then is to overestimate their power. To not see that Christ has defeated them. To not see that God has won that victory. That those who, who stay in slavery to demonic powers have an out, have, have, have had freedom won for them by Christ. That those of us who are in Christian, that are Christians, that live in slavery to sin, we are not appropriating the victory God has won for us. And so this, this passage, this idea that God has, has given us his armor has two important implications for us as a church. The first is that we have good news. Most of the armor Paul gives is defensive armor. But then he gets to this sword of, of the Spirit, the, the Word of God. And I don't think Paul's talking about the Bible here. I think he's talking about something he's already said, the gospel message. And, and in Ephesians 1, he begins this letter by sort of just laying out what God has done for these Christians in Ephesus, what he's done for every Christian throughout history, and he gets to this point where he starts talking about the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And he says this, he says, What is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. Do you hear the same language? Power, dominion, authority. That Paul is saying Christ has overcome those enemies and now sits at the right hand of God in victory over all these enemies. And so we have good news. And I think sometimes as Christians, we just try to give people good advice. Right? We sit around the dinner table. You know, you shouldn't complain so much. Right? Or just complain to someone else. Right? Or, or we, we try to be counselors, right? And there's a reason counselors have to go to school for a long time, because it's a hard work. That we as Christians, we have advice at times, don't get me wrong, but we primarily have news. News that everything evil in your life has been defeated through Christ. And while evil still has a real presence in this world today, Christ has defeated it and is at the right hand of God in victory over everything evil you will ever face in this life. But we have good news. And so this morning, if you are, if you sense you're trapped or enslaved, or you, you feel you're in cycles of sin, cycles of brokenness, bitterness, whatever it is, just know that is not the end of your story, and it doesn't have to be your story. Because God has won victory for you. You have good news. We have good news. But second, we live with great hope. Like I said, I, I realize some of you are living in in probably with an unimaginable evil in, in your own life. You wrestle with things that others don't know about. And I hope you hear this passage and, and you are filled with hope. Because it doesn't just say, someday you'll get to go to heaven and it'll all be over. That's not what this passage says. Paul says, take up this armor of God. And in saying that, he's saying, and remember, God fought for you. 
God died for you. God came out of his grave for you. So you have hope. Because if death could not defeat our God, nothing will. And whatever death, whatever evil, whatever, whatever reality you face in your life, live with hope in the face of it, knowing you take up an armor that God first took up for you. See, in this life, what you see is never what you get. You will wrestle with evil that, that will be unimaginable in some cases. But know that you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And understand, that's not a bad word, right? That's not a scary word. That's a good word because those forces have been defeated in Christ, our Savior. And so we say that. We say our wrestling is not with flesh and blood. It's against the supernatural forces of evil. And it's okay because Christ has won victory over them all. Our Savior defeats our enemy. So the last piece then to this passage is our weapon. And verses 18 and 20 make it clear. It's interesting. Paul, you know, as I was trying to apply this passage, Paul only gives you one application point. And it's in verses 18 through 20 where he says, He says, take up all this armor. He says, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and all supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, if you you want to fight, you want to stand firm, pray. Right? Did you catch that? All prayers, all supplication, praying at all times. Pray for the saints. Pray for me. It's just, there's lots of prayer going on here in just these three verses. That that is our ultimate response to a world that is evil, is prayer. And yet that's where we're exposed. And I want to be careful here because there are some things that are really easy for pastors to lay guilt trips on people for. One of them is prayer. Because right? no one... I don't think anyone will ever get to a place where they feel like they pray enough. You always feel like you could pray more. And so I don't want there to be a burden of, you are not praying enough, and God knows it. Right? That's not what I'm saying. And yet, I, I am convinced that the American church is not a church of prayer. I don't know what the solution looks like yet. I don't have a lot of great answers to that. I just know I've spent enough time to know we do not use prayer like we should. And I know this for several reasons. One is I, I encounter Christians all the time who, and I know some of you fall into this, so hear me out before you get mad at me, but um, I know a lot of Christians who will not pray in front of other people. And I wonder, how do, how do we get to that place? Where we feel like we have to pray well enough, or we feel afraid of what we might say, and prayer is your greatest weapon. It's your greatest source of encouragement to other people. It's the greatest way for God to to bring victory and transformation into your own life. And I know a lot of Christians that cannot pray in front of other people. Or beyond that, um, I know many of you probably would have to go back a long time to go to the last time someone, a Christian, prayed for you in person. Lots of people say, I'll pray for you. But when was the last time someone, you shared something with someone and they just stopped and prayed for you there in the moment? I just know it's not built into the rhythm of our church often. And I'm just, I just feel like I'm lucky as a pastor because people do it for me all the time. And maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe they just think I'm pathetic and weak or something and I just need it. But as a pastor, I have people want to pray for me all the time and I love it because I need it. 
Because there's an unseen reality that every day I face. And I don't know why, I don't know how, I just know prayer is my answer to that. And so we're not a people of prayer, and we're foolish for it. We live our greatest weapon untouched as we fight an enemy who has no answer to prayer. He has no response to our prayers. And so this raises two questions that, that we need to ask. It raises one question, that, that why is prayer such a potent rep, weapon for us? Let me say two things. At first, prayer gives great power, even in weakness. Now, Paul writes Ephesians from prison. He makes that point, verse 20, when he says he's an ambassador in chains. And if I was in prison, and you asked me, what can I pray for you for? It would be easy. Get me out of prison. Please, pray for that all the time. Paul doesn't ask for that. He doesn't ask to be removed from prison. He says, pray that I might speak boldly, that I might proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And that prayer is being answered this morning and has been answered for 2,000 years when Paul sat down to write this letter to ask these Ephesian Christians to pray that he might proclaim the gospel boldly to those who had ch- it chained him. And God is still answering that prayer through this letter in Scripture. And yet we look at chains, we look at imprisonment, and we think, ugh, that's a waste. And yet Paul has changed countless lives. Because this is a pray that I might proclaim the gospel boldly from these chains. See, in, in, in Christianity, our greatest power comes in weakness. And we don't like that. We forget that our Savior died on a cross, shamed, abused, mocked. And we want power, right? We want cultural power. We want politicians to agree with us. We want the news to portray us well, right? We want cultural power. And Paul says, from prison, just pray that I preach well. From chains. I'm an ambassador in chains. Because prayer gives us great power, even in weakness. Because what makes prayer powerful is not that it's some magic incantation. If you say it right, really great things will happen. Like, I won't get into examples of other We've sold some books on that, Christians have. Um, But that's not the point of prayer, right? The point of prayer is who we're praying to. The king of kings, the one who defeated our enemies, who reigns from the right hand of God. We have access to the one with all power, who can break every chain, free every captive, make the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and will one day raise the dead. So in prayer, we have power and great weakness. Let me ask, do you want to break the chains of your family, of your friends, of the people you know who live in cycles of brokenness and addiction? Pray for them. God broke your chains. He broke mine. He can break theirs. But secondly, then prayer opens our eyes to the true battle. As a pastor, um, and I should say it first, I love being in a place new because I can say these things because none of you think I'm talking about you. Because I'm not, because none of you have done this to me yet. But at some point you will, and then I, I feel awkward about sharing things like this. I don't now, though, because no one knows. Um, but, but as a pastor, people complain to me frequently, or used to, not so much here. And they'll complain about other people or about things going on in the church, right? It's a pretty regular thing as a pastor, um, is that, that people complain. And, and I have to be careful, because I am, I am blessed with the gift of sarcasm. If that's a blessing, I don't know. And so I have to wrestle with, you know, unchristian, sarcastic Tim, and... Christian sarcastic Tim. 
There's a very fine line between the two, and I try and walk it very well. But, but there have been times when people have come to me and said, and complained about someone else or, or, or a situation, and I try to let Christian Sarcastic Tim come out as best I can, and, and I'll ask him this question, and it's, it's kind of sarcasm, it's not really. Um, but I'll just say, you know, as, as you've been thinking through this situation and this person, And as you've been praying for it regularly, because, I mean, clearly this is passionate about you, so I know you've gone to prayer many times over this. That's the sarcasm. You caught it. Um, Some of you did. Um, As you've gone to prayer, what's God shown you? And I'm met by silence. Because the question is itself an answer. And I'm not saying... If you pray for people, you'll never be frustrated again. You'll never be angry. You'll never have reason to to complain. I'm just saying you'll be different. And every time someone has, because what I'll do then, I'll say, you know what? Why don't you pray for 30 days? Just pray for a month. Let's talk after that. And every time that's happened, if they've come back to me, if they've prayed, sometimes it's over. The issue's done. But, But if they come back to me, they're a totally different person. Because prayer opens their eyes to a reality they did not see before. Because one of the really terrible things about prayer is you don't get to see the world from your own eyes anymore. You have to see them from God's eyes. You stop caring about just getting your voice heard. You stop caring about being right. You stop caring about being justified over the other person. And you just want God to win. You want his kingdom to come in. That's how Jesus taught us to pray, right? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray for those who frustrate us, for those we complain about, for those we, we just want to give up on, we become people of peace to them, people of grace, people of kindness. Because when we pray for them, we see them the way God sees them. And you know what God did for them? He took up his armor, he fought and died for them. And if he did that for them, for you, for me, it changes the way we look at this world forever. It changes our complaints, it changes our frustration, it changes our hearts. That prayer reminds us that we don't see the whole picture, but God does. And that especially what we see is never what we get. And that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic forces over this present darkness. And we know that is our true battle. And as we go to fight, we pray on our knees for others in humility and in weakness and in kindness towards a world that needs it. A world fighting with evil that has supernatural roots. And remember, these are not discouraging words for Paul, right? That we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. These are good words. Because Christ has defeated these forces. I love the way one of my favorite authors, Indy Wilson, describes the storyline of the Bible to his kids. All right, that we've been preaching through the whole Bible um, as a church over the last several months. And if you want just a one-liner to give to your kids about what the Bible is about, I love what he, he tells, tells his kids. He says, the Bible, the story of the Bible is slay the dragon and get the girl. I like that. That the dragon that we fight is still fighting. But he knows he's doomed. 
and his doom is our hope. And this morning is the first Sunday of Advent. And this morning, the light, the candle that we light is the light of hope. For this season reminds us that our Savior took on flesh to defeat our enemy, to defeat the, the cosmic forces, the, the authorities, the rulers. He took on flesh to defeat them. And now we're called to pray, to stand firm, to fight back. But we pray and we fight back with such hope because we know how the story ends. We know the baby went to his cross. We know that the cross, although he died there, death did not hold him down. And we know that, that God raised that baby, that son, to the right hand of the Father from which he now reigns. And we know as Christians, the dragon will be slayed. Graves will be emptied. And Christ will get his girl, his bride, the church.